Hi friends, welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. And the project is, of course, to work through the entire Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, over how many years it takes. Now, if you've joined us for the very first time today, well, why not consider clicking the subscribe button to make sure you don't miss another single episode. There is, of course, the complete back catalogue of seasons one and two that if you wish you can use to play catch up before joining us today on this amazing journey. A quick reminder that there is always a complete copy of the transcript of roughly what I've said available in the episode notes of each and every podcast. And there'll also be links there where you can find other ways to connect to my ministry and access the teaching that I make available there. But I'll see you at the back end to say bye-bye and to update you on a few things. But bye for now. A few years ago, on a Monday night in August 1999, in a quiet country area of Norfolk, a county in the southeast of England, two burglars broke into a farm to try and steal whatever they could find of value. The owner of that farm was a man called Tony Martin, and he got very upset because he'd been broken into several times in the last year, and because of that, when he heard the burglars, he stormed downstairs and with a loaded, illegally obtained shotgun, for which he didn't have a license, and by the way, it was also a sawn-off shotgun, which was also illegal in the UK. Anyway, what happened next is not of dispute. He shot the two burglars. One burglar, a teenager, was killed on the spot, and another, the older one, was injured. Now, according to him, the gun accidentally went off but the burglars maintained that he deliberately shot them several times as they tried to escape. Both were hit, and as I said, one died. And he was initially arrested by the police and charged with murder. Now, it was subsequently reduced to manslaughter. The whole country was divided between those people who thought that Martin was a murderer and those who said, well, he was just defending his home. Now, our judicial system recognises a distinction between manslaughter and murder. So the question is, when is killing someone actually murder? Or when is murder murder? Now, lawyers around the world have agreed definitions and would answer that question in one clearly defined way. However, Jesus would answer it in another completely different way. So today, as we move further into the Sermon on the Mount, Picking up actually at verses 21 to 26, I want us to look at a type of murder which does not actually involve killing anyone, a concept that Jesus introduces and talks about in this passage. Now you're probably sitting there thinking, well, I've never killed anybody and I don't intend to. And maybe you don't even know somebody that's killed anybody else. So why would you be interested in this? Well, you should be interested in it because the way Jesus handles this subject and how he applies it and the original commandment to all of us, not just then, but today. So when we turn to Matthew chapter 5 in a minute, I want to assure you that this is pertinent to situations we all face all the time. Now, as I said, we're looking at the Sermon of the Mount and I also suggested several times so far 
that the Sermon on the Mount is summed up its purpose in chapter 5 verse 20 where Jesus said, Except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall in no way enter the kingdom of heaven. So you see, Jesus, all the way up to this point, has been talking about these two types of righteousness. An external kind of righteousness, which solely addresses and deals with our actions, and an internal righteousness that, in a sense, focuses more on our attitude. And what he does from this point forward, he's going to give us six examples of the difference between external and internal righteousness. And he's dealing here with the subject of murder, which is the one we're going to look at today. But he will deal with other external actions and emotions like sexual immorality and divorce as he goes on through this teaching. And in each of these cases, he's going to talk about the difference between the righteousness as described by the Pharisees, and then make comparisons on another type of righteousness, in other words, that one based on internal actions and how it equates to a righteousness that consists of a holy internal attitude. So with that in mind, let's look at the first example, which has to do with murder, and he begins to address it in verse 21, where he says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. So the first thing he does, he introduces, well, he refers back to the commandment, one of the commandments. And the commandment itself was very simple. It simply said, do not commit murder. Thou shalt not murder. But the real problem is, is who does he say is quoting this commandment? And what does he mean by it? You see, there are two possibilities. One would say he's just talking about one of the Ten Commandments as written down by Moses. But the second possibility that he's not actually talking primarily about the commandment. He's talking about the Mosaic laws and the interpretation people were putting on it. He's talking about the traditions that built up around the Mosaic teaching of this commandment. Now, I'm definitely of the opinion, and so are most of the Bible experts, that when Moses is speaking here, he's not talking about the original commandment given, or he's not just talking about that. He's talking about what the Pharisees added later and how they interpreted it. And this is obvious because, like I said, he said in verse 20 that he's talking about the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees and how that we have to have something greater, a greater righteousness than that. But the real clincher is the opening to this verse 21. Look very closely. It says, you have heard it says. So this is clearly a reference to what is called the oral tradition. The oral tradition that built up around the Mosaic law after it was given. If Jesus had been talking about the Mosaic single commandment itself, he would have actually introduced what he said by saying, it is written. So he's not talking about the commandment in isolation. He's talking about the subsequent interpretation and how it was applied, particularly by the Pharisees of that day. Now, here's the problem. The problem with the Pharisees and what they said about the commandment, the commandment that simply said, thou shalt commit murder. They said it only applied in a situation where someone literally took a knife out and thrust it into someone's chest or some other act of violence, obviously. Some act of violence that would lead to another person's death, which then became, and you didn't do that explicit thing, then you were okay with God. In other words, the interpretation 
of the commandment was that if you haven't committed the literal physical act of murder, then everything was okay. In their teachings, the physical act exhausted the interpretation of what Moses said, and they applied that principle not only to this commandment, but to all of them. Now, I find it rather interesting that it's always this commandment that people will want to say to you if they want to try and impress on you that they don't need God and they don't need to be saved and that they've lived a good life. One of the first things they'll pull out is they say, and I've heard it said to me many times over the year, well, I've never killed anybody. It's interesting that they always land on that one commandment, doesn't it? Why don't they land about the one that says, I have never stolen anything? I wonder how many people can apply that to their life. Or I have never lied. Or I have never coveted anything. It's always, oh, I've never killed or I try not to hurt anybody. So I'm okay with God. But they're completely ignoring the wider picture. They're completely ignoring what Jesus is teaching here. And it is this attitude that Jesus is dealing with here. So it's nothing new. The idea that a commandment, the Ten Commandments, each and every commandment, is exhausted when you can say, I have never physically done the thing that the commandment mentioned. Now what happens next is after mentioning the original commandment, Jesus expands and offers a clarification. Look again at verse 21. You have heard that it was said, You shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be in danger of judgment. Now, he then continues and adds a clarification in verse 22. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister without cause will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fires of hell. So the clarification here is simply this. Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, you are teaching an external type of holiness. All that matters as far as you're concerned is your actions, what you do. But then Jesus comes along and says, no, that's not what's important. What is important is your internal mindset because it is the mindset that will then give birth to the external actions, good or bad. Remember in verse 20 he said you have heard it said, referring to the oral teachings of the rabbis and the religious leaders. But in his clarifications he now says, but now I say to you. And that's a significant turn of phrase again. It's significant for the simple reason that in Jesus' day, the religious leaders of that day who taught about the law of Moses would never have said anything like I say to you. They would have said something like, this is what Moses said, or this is this person's interpretation, and I have an interpretation that agrees with that. But they would never assume to say it upon their own authority. Bible experts say that the language Jesus uses here says that he is assuming an authority that the likes of the people of Israel at that time would have never have heard before. He spoke as one who had the right and authority of God to say what he said. He's not trying to explain his position or back it up with worldly wisdom. He didn't have to explain what he was saying or how important it was because he spoke as one who had the implicit authority of God himself. And in his case, of course, God, his father. 
Now, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, which is not going to be to the end of chapter 7, we are told that the people received his teachings enthusiastically because he didn't speak like others and because he spoke with authority. And this language we're seeing used here is part of that. So Jesus comes and he says to you, and what follows is his clarification of the whole issue of what it means to fall foul of the first commandment, thou shalt not commit murder. And he's clearly saying that anger qualifies as breaking that commandment. But he says more than that because he says in verse 22, even anyone who says to his brother Raka shall become in danger of answering to the court. And whoever says you fool is in danger of hell. So he clarifies in three parts in total. These are the three ways that he clarifies that the original commandment can be widened out, the perspective of thou shalt not commit murder, and how it can apply in terms of our internal attitude towards other people. And I want to look at all three of these, not just in this next episode, but we'll probably need to spill over in tomorrow's episode to close it off. So his first attempt is to highlight something that I've called unreasonable anger. He said, if you notice, that whoever is angry with his brother or sister without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. So what he's doing here, he's equating anger with murder. Now, he's not saying that all anger is wrong. As a matter of fact, we see Jesus himself get angry in Mark chapter 3, where we're told he looked around at them with anger and was grieved by the hardness of their hearts. When Jesus sees people behaving with a hard heart, towards other people, particularly suffering people, he gets angry. In the book of Ephesians, speaking on anger, from a slightly different perspective, the Apostle Paul also, well, he commands us and he says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. So it seems to be okay to be angry about things sometimes, But certain types of anger have the potential to put our eternal souls in danger. And Paul here warns about the danger of letting normal anger fester into something more like a sort of toxic resentfulness. So the kind of anger that Jesus is warning about is what I'm calling unreasonable anger. Sometimes you are angry and sometimes we ought to be. And there's an anger that comes about from a feeling of righteous indignation at the hard-heartedness of others. And you ought to have that at times. And that's legitimate. The key word here is Jesus is saying, but if you're angry with your brother without cause, this is, of course, now an unreasonable anger. You have no grounds for being angry. And in that case, you ought not to be angry. I think we need to just pursue this for a bit further for a moment. You see, there are two different Greek words that are used in the New Testament that are translated anger or wrath sometimes. And one translation means hot-tempered. It's an outburst of anger. A contemporary of Jesus described that type of anger as being like dried straw on fire. It quickly flares up and quickly dies down. Now, we all know some people can blow up a bit like that. Maybe we do that ourselves. And people will describe that sort of person as having a short fuse. They blow up, but then 20 minutes later, they're sorry they got angry. Well, that's one word that's used in the New Testament when describing anger. But there's another type of anger, and that is the deep-seated feeling of hostility. And it's a much more long-lived anger. It's the anger a person nurses in that they don't let things lie. 
and perhaps the word that best describes this type of anger is the word bitterness or resentment. And that's the word, that's the type of feeling that Jesus is using, particularly here. When you get an attitude of hostility and a growing resentment towards another person, well, that is without cause because it's it's no longer connected to the immediate event that might have caused a short-term outburst of anger. And that is when Jesus says you are in danger of judgment. One other little comment here is the little phrase without cause. Now, obviously it can mean, in English we would translate that as meaning without a good reason, no purpose. But there's also a sense in the original language of how the word's used, it means to use it inconsiderately or carelessly. In other words, it is an unreasonable anger because there's no good reason at that moment why you should be angry in that particular situation. You have carelessly allowed anger to be your default response, usually because of a long-held bitterness or resentment. Now, all of us, I think, I believe, are drawn towards one of these two personalities and these two reactions, to a greater or lesser degree, granted. Some people are the type of people who blow up, and some people are the type of people who clam up and build up resentment. Now, Jesus is clearly teaching both are wrong, but it's important to recognise that anger is not just the obvious explosion of anger, because that's what most people think. What Jesus is talking about, yes, he's talking about that, but he's also talking about something that is very much more deeply ingrained inside of us. The truth of the matter is we all get angry sometimes, but we all sometimes allow that anger to settle and fester And it becomes an anger which doesn't really have a cause anymore. And he says, if you've got that act of anger, the anger without cause and its deep-seated resentment, then you cannot escape the judgment of this commandment. Now, it's interesting that Jesus uses the idea of a sibling, a brother and sister. And that's what he chooses to use as an example in this case. And I believe that's because the Lord knows us as human beings and that we're most likely to struggle with this type of anger with those that we are closest to or those that we're involved with. We often hold grudges and when we hold grudges we begin to be ruled by our resentment and not our reason and that is particularly applicable when it comes to those who are closest to us. And that again is why I'm calling this type of anger an unreasonable anger. The anger that takes over and affects our emotions way beyond the actual event that initiated, leading to this type of resentful personality. The philosopher Plato, he had an interesting insight in this. He likened the human condition to being like a chariot driver whose task it was to drive two horses, one of which was wild and rebellious and the other which was gentle and obedient. And he said, our purpose is to rein the wild one in and give free rein to the other. Now, Plato, in his teaching, called the gentle one reason, and he called the other horse, the one that was wild and out of control, he called passion. That is what happens when anger takes over, in the fact that our God-given natural positive passions can be emotionally twisted out of shape to the point where we can't maintain control anymore. And often when anger enters the scene, there's nothing can be done. We are not able to do anything in the right way to even respond rationally. It can, I believe, in a sense, lead to a sort of temporary insanity. 
I've come to the conclusion that Jesus is warning this, that if you allow that type of anger to fester, you get to a point where you can't even think straight, which is very sobering, isn't it? Which warns me that none of us have the luxury of letting these emotions of resentment and anger linger. People who are angry, in the moment, they don't think straight. It can lead them to develop a resentment born out of fear. And it's really hard to maintain balanced decision-making when you're feeling threatened or afraid. Don't ever make any decisions when you're fearful, when you're angry, because, as it tells us in Ephesians, sleep on it first. As Ephesians suggested, if we have a really bad day or are angry with someone, then sleep on it. And if it's a really bad day, sleep on it for a week, I would say. And if it's a really, really bad feeling, sleep on it for a month. For as long as it takes, for as long as the calendar needs to turn until the anger has dissipated. And then talk to someone, a Christian brother or sister, who can help you, who can be objective and who can be reasonable about the issue that caused you the problem in the first place. But Jesus here says that if you don't take that approach, you're actually in danger of judgment. Now, as you can imagine, there are two ways you can interpret what he says because he does refer to this human council court system. But then you could say, well, a human court doesn't judge anger, but others point to the idea that he's trying to ground it in a teaching that people would understand at the time to talk about the certain types of anger, and a good measure of it is the type of anger that could lead to a legal charge being made against you of which you could be found guilty. And the example he uses of the local court that was made up of village elders. Now we know from historical writings outside the Bible scriptures that at that time if a village had less than 150 people there were three appointed elders who made decisions about how conflict between people should be resolved. If it was more than 150 people then the size of that council would go up from all the way through from 7 to 23 elders depending on the size of the population that would determine the number of elders who sat in the local council and they would make decisions on disputes between people. Now the fact that Jesus uses this term raka, which is an expression of content, uh, which was seen as a litmus test, if you like, for a local council on finding someone guilty, that would suggest that if you're doing something that is likely that meant that you potentially could end up before a local council by expressing this type of anger, Uh, in such a way that it becomes something similar to what we today would call libel. Anyway, be that as may, Jesus says, if you do this sort of thing, you're in danger of judgment. Now, I personally suspect that what he's talking about is clearly the judgment of God. And the stuff about the local council is only given to the people he is speaking to and to give them a context so they know exactly what he means. And I base my opinion primarily on the judgments that he mentions in the rest of the passage would fit in exactly with that perspective. But here, the big point is Jesus is saying that God judges anger, not just the act of murder itself. And Jesus is teaching that there's a type of murder in the sense that does not involve killing people physically, it means killing them spiritually. And all you have to do to fall foul of this commandment is to be angry in the way Jesus described because Jesus equates anger with murder and one form of that anger as we've discussed here is this type of unreasonable anger 
But there's a second and a third type of anger mentioned by Jesus here. But we look at that in the next episode. Okay, friends, that's it for today. Thank you so much for joining me. What an amazing encouragement it is to know that there are so many of you who've made the decision to follow the Bible Project daily broadcast and make the not just the reading of the Word of God, but the study of the Bible part of the rhythm of your daily lives. And if you are benefiting from that, then why not consider liking or sharing it because I'm told that's the way in which more and more people will hear about this and be also able to benefit from making the Bible part of their daily time. But with all that said, that's it for today. I do hope to see you back here. Well, it'll be tomorrow for me. It'll be whatever day you go pop back in and listen to the next episode of the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Bye-bye for now.